Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website, sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists, and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease, and racial violence. In this episode of the Liberal Arts Collective, we are welcoming Dr. Rebecca Tarlow to talk about some of her recent projects, including her research on the landless workers movement in Brazil, as well as teachers movements and strikes in Brazil, Mexico, and the United States. Dr. Rebecca Tarlow is Assistant Professor of Education and Labor and Employment Relations at Penn State. She has her doctorate in Social and Cultural Studies in Education from the University of California, Berkeley, and examines how class, race, and gender hierarchies are reproduced through schools, as well as how social movements use education to contest these inequalities. Rebecca's research agenda has three broad areas of focus, theories of the state and state society relations, social movements, critical pedagogy and learning, and Latin American education and development. Her scholarship engages in debates in the fields of political sociology, international and comparative education, social movements, critical pedagogy, global and transnational sociology, and social theory. Over the past decade, Rebecca has done extensive ethnographic research on the Brazilian landless workers movement. While the MST has been recognized globally for its success in forcing the government to redistribute land to over 300,000 poor rural families, the organization's educational initiatives have received less attention. Rebecca's book, Occupying Schools, Occupying Land, How the Landless Workers Movement Transformed Brazilian Education, was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press and explores the movement's attempts to transform public education across the country. So I just want to welcome everyone to this episode. My name is Michelle McGowan, and I'd like to also welcome our guest today, Dr. Rebecca Tarlow, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. So Becky, welcome. Yeah. So something that was exciting to me about interviewing you was how much your work touches in one way or another on almost all of our themes for the podcast. So could you start by telling us a little bit about your book and your research in general? Yeah, I'd be happy to. But first of all, just thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I think the podcast is a really great initiative. So thank you. So my, and, and it's also interesting to hear that my research touches on a lot of the different themes that you've already covered. So I would be excited to hear more about those intersections. Um, so my research uh, broadly, you can think of it as the relationship between social movements and education. And so you can think about that relationship in three primary ways. So I'm really interested in how being part of a social movement is often a transformational experience, an educational experience for people that transforms their lives and transforms their life trajectories. 
Um, and so we can call that the informal learning that happens through social movement participation. Uh, I'm also very interested in the way in which social movements create non-formal educational practices, often based in the, the theories of the Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire, in his book, Pedagogy of the Press. Um, so how social movements have actually taken the ideas in the pedagogy of the press and other emancipatory radical critical pedagogies and develop educational programs for their activists that help their activists um, be able to analyze the structural conditions that uh, challenge their ability to live a prosperous life, right? So educational programs at the grassroots. And then a third direction that you can think of with education as social movements is how social movements have historically transformed formal schooling systems. So um, the history of like the Black uh, African-American Studies Department, Ethnic Studies Department in many universities are tied to the histories of social movements. Social movements have developed curriculum um, throughout the past hundred years for schools. And so social movements have been a big force transforming both K through 12 and higher education. And so my book the, uh, on the landless workers movement in Brazil is really about this third aspect of this intersection. It's really looking at how social movements can come in and transform the formal public school system to support their broader social and political goals. Awesome, yeah, I mean, I think about that probably with um, Chicano departments or Latino studies departments as well being tied to that, that movement. Um, and so I guess, how did you first get involved with Brazil and what made you kind of want to focus on that area in your research? Yeah, so I, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, I had already had an interest in Latin America. And so I was majoring in Latin American studies. I had spent some time in Mexico um, and other parts of Latin America. I was studying Spanish. But my junior year, I just decided I wanted to go to a new region of the continent. And so I decided I wanted to study abroad in Brazil. Um, and so as a junior, I started taking Portuguese classes. I went to Brazil for the first time. And that's actually like, Brazil is actually the reason I started studying education. Because but previously, I had been in interest in issues of politics, of social change. I was an activist myself as an undergraduate. This was a time of the anti-war movement. Um, against, the anti against the war in Iraq. Um, I was part of the anti-sweatshop movement, but I never really thought about education as a form of social change until I went to Brazil and I started working with a feminist organization in the Northeast of the country called Grupo Mulher Maravilla, Group Wonder Woman. And so this organization, um, it actually started because a bunch of elderly women in the community were watching the show Wonder Woman and they started to get angry and say, hey, a Wonder Woman isn't this beautiful woman who just appears and fixes everything. A Wonder Woman is a woman who cooks and cleans and irons and does childcare and also has time to organize for the benefit of their community. And so they call themselves Group Wonder Woman. They're very inspired by liberation theology, a radical current within the Catholic Church. And their goal when I arrived in 2004 to work with the organization was to end to end all forms of sexism, racism, and class oppression. <laughs> so just, you know, a small, a small thing, small. not, yeah. Right. And so I asked the founder of the organization, Lorges, who became one of my political mentors, like how she planned to do that. And she painted, she pointed to a picture of a person and that person was Paulo Freire, who wrote Pedagogy of the Press. And I had actually read Pedagogy of the Press as an undergrad before that moment, but it hadn't really resonated with me. It seemed really theoretical. I wasn't sure how it applied to actual social movements and social change. 
But then as a junior in college, watching this feminist organization use um, grassroots educational programs to raise the consciousness of women in the community and engage them in action uh, was just, it, it's so inspiring. And it basically transformed my life trajectory where I decided I really wanted to become um, what in Latin America would be called a popular educator, um, educador popular, and that I wanted to study and learn about education as a pedagogy of social change. So, so Latin America brought me to Brazil and Brazil brought me to education. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's just, it's praxis, right? So it's figuring out how to take what we're kind of learning over here is theory and bring it to where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. I guess one of the things that as I was reading through um, some of the parts of your books, one of the terms that you used that jumped out at me was the contentious co-governance idea. And so how do you define that term? You're using it um, to talk about a strategy of the MST, but how are you defining that term and how did that group employ that method um, to achieve their goals? Yeah, thanks for the question, because that is one of the central concepts in my book about the MST, MST being Movimento Senteja, the Landless Workers Movement. And my, my engagement with this term um, really relates to what people think about social movements and the relationship between social movements and the state. And so often in um, social movement theory, and also just among activists, the assumption is that once like once you're a social movement that begins to engage the state, engage state institutions, like you're going to decline in your power, you're going to be co-opted, you're going to demobilize, right? And so there's a sense that only social movements that maintain complete independence from the state are going to be able to be radical and have long-term sustainability. Meanwhile, knowing that sort of from my activist history in the United States, I get to Brazil and the landless workers movement is doing the opposite, right? They're both engaging in protest and they're also co-governing a system of more than 2000 public schools across the country that aren't private schools, but rather public schools embedded within the public school system where the movement's actually able to implement these radical pedagogies that um, help students practice what it means to be part of a direct democratic system so they're practicing participatory democracy. It helps engage students in what it means to be part of a collective work process. So breaking these ideologies of individualism. It's helping these students um, learn about activism and social movement history and social movement theory, right? And so these public schools are actually, which are public schools, which are both, you know, an arm of what we could call the imperialist capitalist state. And public schools are allowing the movement to train a cadre of activists that are contesting the goals of that same state that's funding those school systems, right? And so I was really trying to understand, like, how do we think about social movements that are co-governing these public schools? And how can we move beyond this idea of co-optation, but also not simply idolize cooperation, right? It's not just cooperation. And what I found working with the MST is that what they really do is this form of contentious co-governance where they're co-governing the public school, but at times the ideals they wanna implement uh, come in direct contradiction with the ideals of the school system or the university. Um, so one example uh, from my research uh, that I talk about in one of the chapters of my book is when the movement actually enters the university system and they try to transform university courses to more um, adapt to their ideals. 
And so um, professors who are sympathetic at first end up having a big issue with it <laughs> because the students are all about the professors collectively deciding their curriculum with the students. Um, the movement really demands that all the curriculum relate to themes of social struggle or have some kind of relationship to their life. Um, they also refuse to do things like take standardized tests that are ideology, they believe ideolo ideologically don't fit into the goals of their movement. And so um, in this process of the movement sort of co-governing and creating the proposals for school systems, it was a constant conflict, right? Constant conflict um, with, uh, with state actors and even with sympathetic folks within these school systems. And so how I define contentious co-governance in the book is, is the, this process of when social movements enter public institutions and begin to co-govern those institutions in coordination with state actors, while also simultaneously engaging in actions and promoting practices that come into conflict with institutional norms, right? And I argue that these types of conflicts are inevitable even in under, even under left-wing governments and within progressive institutions, because the ideals of a self-declared socialist movement are always gonna conflict with the ideals and norms of um, school systems in what we refer to as sort of an individualistic meritocratic capitalist society, right? And so again, contentious co-governance try, tries to get at this idea that social movements can be both contentious and they can use public institutions to achieve their goals. One thing for listeners who may be a little bit less familiar with Brazil, could you kind of give a, maybe like a high level summary about some of the clashes that are happening between um, the landless workers movement and then the, the government of Brazil? Yeah, so the landless workers movement, they, um, they contest one of the fundamental um, ideals of liberal democracy, which is private property, right? So they emerged in the early 1980s and they didn't emerge as like one coherent movement, but rather dispersed attempts among poor landless laborers that decided to take the issue of land into their own hands and occupy unproductive land estates, right? So basically what their argument was is that the history of colonialism was a history that gave the rights to own the majority of the land to a very small minority of the people, and that that was illegal and that was wrong and that created the current land structure. And so the movement will literally break down a fence, like a private fence around a large farm that's not being used productively, and they'll go in, and the, the word more familiar with the US audience is squatters, right? They'll go in and they'll start, start squatting on that land and, and, and trying to pressure the government to buy up that land to redistribute it, right? Um, so that's a huge, I mean, that's where the conflict starts with the state is that they're basically saying the people who have this property don't actually have the rights to this property because the property was given to them through a history of exploitation, enslavement, colonialism. And so over the past 30 years, the movement, as you mentioned in the beginning, has actually been able to redistribute land to more than 300,000 families, about one and a half million people, through this direct confront confrontation with, uh, with this idea of private property through these land occupations. Um, so that's where the conflict of the state begins. And then from there, you know, the MST is not just fighting for the land, but they're also fighting for the resources to live a dignified life on the land. Um, so they fight for uh, the right to housing, to roads, to technical assistance. They're also fighting for what they call societal transformation, which is grassroots um, popular democracy. 
they're fighting for LGBT rights, gender parity, um, indigenous rights. And so, um, and they're also, they're also just in general fighting against the entire mode of agricultural production where you have big transnational corporations like Monsanto and Bayer come in, um, Cargill that come in and create like these monocropping soy plantations, right? And so they, their argument is that that's not using land to its social good. And so they also have the right to occupy those large um, productive plantations, which has gotten them a lot of slack from the public and from the government, right? Um, and so the, the conflicts are constant, 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 constant between the MST and the Brazilian state. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's really helpful because I think, you know, it's just difficult when we get down to specific national contexts. Sometimes, you know, the specifics are a little bit harder to pin down just from, you know, reading an article, but it's definitely helpful to have a little bit more background. Do you see any intersections between some of those struggles? I know you mentioned um, indigenous land rights. Do you see any intersections between um, also environmental issues or environmental rights as well? Yeah, so the MST is definitely part of what you could call the large global uh, climate justice movement, right? So they believe like their entire philosophy of farming is based on the idea of agroecology which is that you have to have um, sustainable farming methods that are not exploiting the land, that are diversifying, that are using, that aren't monocropping, but rather using the biodiversity of uh, diverse geographical, ge ge geographical locations to produce food. And um, the monocropping and industrial agricultural model is perhaps the worst contributor in the world to climate, climate change. And so this ideal of going back to having small farming communities that are producing through agroecological methods is, is a solution. It's not just a critique, but it's actually a concrete solution to the climate chaos that we're facing today. So, so absolutely, the MST could be seen as part of this broader climate justice movement, um, specifically focusing on farming and land as a component of that. I know that your research focuses on Brazil, but um, I do work on Chile. And recently I had read an article that was published in the New Yorker, it was called Chile at the Barricades. And the author of that piece, Daniel Alarcon, he talked about how the pandemic restrictions there actually provided the government with a, a little bit of a respite to be able to go in and erase some of the signs of the protests that had been happening since last fall there. Um, including, you know, erasing graffiti and just kind of having a chance to clean things up a little bit. Do you think that the pandemic or have you seen any effects of the pandemic um, on social movements in Brazil? What, what have been the effects and consequences there? Yeah, the pandemic has, been, has had a huge effect on social movements in Brazil. Uh, but I think you have to contextualize when the pandemic is happening within the broader political context. So as you know, as a Latin Americanist, uh, Latin America has really gone through what a lot of people have called a right-wing turn over the past few years. Um, and Brazil has been at the very front of it, right? So um, it went from a country that was run by a left-leaning government, the Workers' Party, for almost 14 years, um, to a country that had that party kicked out of office through what a lot of people call an institutional coup, um, where the previous president, Jimmy Rousseff, was impeached. Um, they had what you like sort of a, a, a market conservative, financial conservative president 
for about a year and a half. And then in September, October, October 2018, they elected what you, who, a person you could really like honestly just refer to as a neo-fascist who, you know, uh, vilifies poor people, black people, landless people, women, LGBT folks, right? And so, um, so a lot of the challenges that MST is facing really go back to that conservative turn in Brazil. And with the pandemic, President Bolsonaro, the current president, who is this right-wing ideologue, he's really just trying to use every excuse possible to attack the movement, right? So he was already um, implementing eviction notices to the occupations that still exist in Brazil. He was trying to privatize a lot of the public land that the MSC currently has access to. He cut all the resources that the MSD used to have at the national level to push forward its agroecological farming projects. Um, and with the pandemic, uh, even though he refuses to acknowledge the pandemic as a serious threat and he takes it as a joke, and he just recently called Brazilians weak for worrying about the pandemic still, um, he has used like that crisis to continue to attack the MSD and attack land occupations. So I think it's the combination of both the pandemic and this right-wing government that's in power that's been really, really hard for the movement. I mean, it's a term that we're hearing a lot with businesses and organizations and institutions, but what modifications have um, the social movements in Brazil, the MST specifically, how have they pivoted, so to speak, as a result of the pandemic with respect to some of their strategies and techniques? Yeah, so... For the MST, the crisis that's currently happening, and because the government refuses to address that crisis, the crisis has fallen on common everyday working class people to address and solve themselves, right? And so the big pivot the MST has done is trying to be as much as possible in solidarity with other working class communities who are going through hardships at this time. And so they have, since March, implemented a national strategy of solidarity with working class communities, um, where I think the most recent numbers is like 3,000, they've been able to actually donate 3,000 tons of food throughout Brazil to poor urban communities. Um, they have turned a lot of their um, factories, like they have like cachaça, which is a Brazilian alcohol, like production factories on their camps and settlements and they've turned them into like alcohol factories for cleaning materials. Um, they have transformed a bunch of their local schools and other buildings into makeshift hospitals for people that are sick. Um, they turned, they had a few different uh, urban cafes in different cities where they um, sold their uh, agri agricultural products. They've turned those into soup kitchens where people throughout um, those cities can come, poor people can come and get free lunches. And so like that pivot has been huge because really what they're showing is that actually the solidarity, what their movement means is not a movement for farmers just so farmers can benefit, but it's a movement of working class people so working class people can support each other. In the United States, this is often referred to as mutual aid. Um, but for the MSC, they just talk, call, it about, call it working class solidarity, this idea that working class communities in times of crisis with governments that aren't supportive have to support each other. And so again, I don't know how to describe how much 3,000 tons of food is, but directly donating 3,000 3, tons of food throughout the country is just a huge, huge um, 
uh, benefit for people who couldn't afford food before. So that's been the MSC's pivot is to, to think about the rest of the population as much as possible and support and support that population with the infrastructure that the movement has built, built up over the past 35 years. And so basically just new new collaborations and kind of thinking outside the box to get help to a greater number of people. Do you think there are differences then? I know um, you said urban cafes in your last response, but are there differences in the way that urban activists and rural activists are going about creating this change? Do they have to change their strategies or how do you see that kind of manifesting itself in Brazil? I think the, the specific location of where social movements emerge and their goals are gonna be very much shaped about shaped by whether they're a rural movement, an urban movement, an explicitly black movement, a feminist movement, right? And so there's various forms of difference across social movements that are extremely important. Uh, for this particular difference between urban and rural movements, of course, the MST's goal is to get land access for farmers, right? And so in some ways, <clears throat> this makes their movement um, a, also a territorial movement. There's a Brazilian scholar, Bernardo um, Fernandes Manzano, who calls the MST a, a social territorial movement, not just a social movement, where they're actually fighting for entire territories, um, and for the transformation of social relations in, in those territories, right? And so that makes a lot of their struggle um, harder because they're fighting for that land and that's a big, um, a big front to capital, but also easier in extent because people are all within this specific space. And so when you create a school in that space, the co-governance of that school becomes easier than if you have an urban movement that has a local school that isn't within the territory of the movement itself. Um, that being said, the big, one of the biggest urban movements in Brazil is currently the homeless movement, the movement of people without roofs, um, the MTST in Portuguese. And that movement was actually created and inspired in the late 1990s directly by MST activists who left the movement and helped to start organize, ha organizing housing occupations. And within those housing occupations, they often occupy like dozens and dozens of um, abandoned houses within the periphery of a city. And then you can see some of these more territorial um, uh, strategies coming about where they build a school within that urban community, where they um, start thinking about different social relations and types of direct governance within that urban community. And so you can see, you can see parallels between urban and rural movements in Brazil. Um, but of course, they're, they're very different and they have different goals. Yeah, I mean, I think probably too, um, it goes back to some of the squatting rights that you were talking about. So people going in and, and the occupation, and that's something that you can do in rural areas, um, probably more land-based versus urban where it's gonna be you know, going into a specific structure and occupying that. But I mean, it seems like that has been an effective strategy for the MST and similar organizations there, whether they're rural or, or urban. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the biggest difference between social movements and in different locations is whether, whether they're fundamentally anti-capitalist, right? So whether they're fundamentally trying to change the capitalist system or whether they're trying to reform it to improve the livelihoods of, of some folks within the system, right? And so that's honestly the biggest difference between the MST 
and some of the urban labor movements that um, have been really strong in Brazil and elected the Workers' Party to the presidency in 2003 is that fundamentally the Workers' Party and the labor unions, like their goal wasn't to necessarily transform capitalism, at least maybe initially, but not when they got elected in 2003, their goal was really to keep the economy expanding and then redistributing some of that industrial growth to poor people to raise them out of poverty, right? And so that um, goal of like maintaining the system, increasing GDP, but redistributing money in order to improve people's conditions, to improve their access to healthcare, et cetera, that's also a progressive goal, but it's a different goal than trying to transform the capitalist system into a different type of economic system. So I would say that's like the big difference between movements in Brazil and in the United States. So there's scholarly interest, but it's also very obvious to me that you're passionate at a personal level about the things that you're studying. And something that I loved from the dedication um, that you have in your book is the quote from your husband, Manuel, when he said that you showed him, quote, research as a means of forming powerful human connections, end quote. And so how does that idea inform your work? (laughs) Yeah, um, great question. And yeah, my um, my husband's Manuel Rosado. He's also a um, uh, assistant professor at Penn State in uh, the labor employment relations. And uh, I remember when I took him down to Brazil for the first time in, I think it was 2014, and I brought him to a few different MST communities where I did research. He was just so um, impressed or just shocked about the degree to which I had these close familial relationships with the people I was doing research with, right? Like I consider them my family um, and we were very, very close. And, and I joked with him and I was like, you know, Manuel, I just think research is an excuse to get to know cool people and um, make these relationships and make these connections. And so I think for him, that sort of shifted his thinking about research because he had thought about like making close connections as a means to do good research. And I was thinking about doing research as a means to making transnational connections with other activists um, and people who are involved in social change. And so um, so it was interesting to hear, I didn't even realize what I was doing, but it was interesting to see him articulate that. Um, but it's true, like the people, and it, you know, I'm lucky because I do research with a social movement that I'm highly aligned with, right? Um, so this can't, this doesn't happen if you study, I have a friend who studies the Nike Foundation, you know, she does critical research on corporations. And so you're not gonna have the same types of relationships, but because I study social movements and I am an activist in the United States, I've been able to form really, really close relationships with um, MST activists and other teacher union activists. And in fact, I had nine MST leaders at my wedding uh, in July, 2018. We were able to pay for their tickets and they came and it was really wonderful to have them share that moment with us. So thanks for asking that more personal question. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a part of the scholarship activist kind of model. And so I did want to hear you talk a little bit more about that. And I know in addition to the work that you do in Brazil and in Mexico, you're also involved with the 320 movement here in State College. So can you talk a little bit about that organization and how it came about and what their mission is? Yeah, of course. Um, So the 320 coalition came about on uh, March 20th, 2019 when the State College Police um, issued a mental health warrant to Osazi Osagi in his apartment at 2 a.m. And then he ended up with 
three shots in his back and dead, right? So it was another, yet another case of a police department murdering um, a, a, a young black person. This uh, Osazi Osagi was a 29 year old African-American. Um, and so the 320 Coalition really was part of this more national movement of Black Lives Matter and like people who coalesce around the murder of um, black folks and police brutality in their community. And so since March 20th, 2019, the coalition has been trying to, first of all, get the names of the officers who were involved in the shooting released, like those names still haven't been released to the public. The um, DA has announced that it was a, a justifiable use of force, which the 320 Coalition completely disagrees with. How could someone get in a mental health warrant that his father had actually called the police to help him end up with three shots in his back? Um, and so the 320 Coalition has been doing this work. Uh, it, it really galvanized a lot after, like the whole country, after the murder of George Floyd um, in May. Uh, there were protests this past summer that were the largest protests in the history of State College, as far as I understand it, uh, with a thousand people in the streets shutting down big major streets like Atherton. Um, so yeah, so the 320 movement, the 320 coalition is one local example of this larger movement for Black lives that has coalesced across the country and that really has to do with police brutality and the history of um, just police murders and police violence against Black people in this country. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that it was, it predates George Floyd, right? I mean, it's sort of drawing attention to the fact that there's continuity here and these incidents, I mean, everyone knows that they were happening before and then it kind of got to this tipping point, but it just, again, reiterates that it's something that was going on, it is going on, continues to go on. So um, it's an important issue to draw attention to. I also think too, with the rhetoric, um, you know, people here defund the police and they think that means that there's not going to be any public safety, but in incidents like the one that happened in state college, it's also about should police be going on mental health calls? Is that something that should or should not be happening, right? And so I think opening that debate is really important. Yeah, and it's crazy that it's even a debate still. Like, police, police should not be the first responders to mental health calls, right? Um, so it, it's, like, it's almost like, I can't believe we're still discussing this. I thought we were beyond this. Um, the defunding question, I think, has gotten a lot more, I think people understand it a lot more, that defunding is about, yes, taking funding away from police departments and then investing in other social services that communities need, right? Um, and then like related to that is also this call, this more radical call for abolishing the police, the idea that the police were an institution that was created um, to control, to first of all, to patrol enslaved African and African descendants, right? During the time of enslavement. And then also just to patrol workers and prevent worker unions and worker organizing, right? So should that, that actually be the institution currently that promotes public safety. Like that's a huge debate. And in fact, um, we had in um, September, me, uh, um, one thing I'm doing as a faculty member is I'm working with about 20, 25 other faculty and we're trying to create a consortium for social movements and education. And so we had a big event and symposium in September that was about um, the anti-black police violence and the popular uprisings and we had uh, a social movement leader um, from Minneapolis who came and talked about George Floyd and George Floyd's murder and the aftermath. And she discussed how for about a hundred days, um, 
in September, now it's gotta be more, they had an entire area downtown that was police free, right? And so they were experimenting with different ways to reimagine um, public security, public safety, um, public services without these, uh, without the police. And that's been a really challenging, but I think interesting experiment. Um, so yeah, so I think we're on the, I hope, I hope we keep moving forward. I think we're on the cusp of being able to really um, break out of the norm and think of, or rethink about the institutions we want to actually be in our communities. Well, I think you're just seeing such an intensification um, within social movements as a result of the pandemic. You know, people are being forced to really kind of laser focused, see certain things that maybe they could ignore a little bit more when they were going about their daily lives normally. And I know your latest project, you're talking about um, teachers and teacher strikes. So maybe do you want to kind of conclude with talking a little bit about that project and then also maybe how you're seeing that with respect to the pandemic now that you know teachers a lot of them are saying and rightfully so they never signed up to be frontline workers right and now they're going into classrooms in places where rates of positivity um, of COVID are really high and so finding themselves in these situations what can you just talk a little bit about the teachers movements and then maybe what's happening now with that yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, the, my my research and work on teachers and teacher organizing predates COVID, and actually even predates the um, the wave of teacher strikes that happened here in the United States in 2018 in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona. Uh, for me, like my interest in this question of teachers and teacher organizing started in Brazil in 2017. I was there um, for a year, and that was when uh, the uh, president, Gemma Rousseff, was being impeached in what a lot of people called a coup. And I would go to these protests, and there'd be 100,000 people in the streets protesting these political changes. And like 60,000 of the 100,000 people would be teachers, right? And so I, I started to wonder, like, why was it that teachers and teacher unions, but not even always teacher unions, just teachers in general, we're playing this outsized role in these larger political struggles. And so my research in, uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Oaxaca, Mexico, and, and various locations in the United States, but focused specifically on New York, but I've been doing research in a lot of different places, ask this question, like when do teachers and their unions become part of broader social movements? And what are the barriers to that broader, those broader forms of activism? and what leads teachers to organize in ways that aren't just about their immediate benefits, but are about the, the students and the schools that their students deserve, as the US teacher movement really refers to it. Um, and so the research is comparative, looking at the history of teacher unions and teacher organizing in those three countries, and, um, and the moments when social, what, the moments when teacher movements become these broader mobilizations. Um, my luck was that in the United States, the U.S. was going to be a negative case study because uh, in 2017, like teachers hadn't been striking much. They hadn't been that mobilized. There had been a big strike in Chicago in 2012, but nothing had really followed it. Uh, um, and then in 2018, there was this huge wave of teacher strikes. There were more strikes in 2018 than the country had seen since 1984, right? And those were teachers in really conservative states like West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, um, that were out in the streets. And sometimes, like in Arizona, there were 70,000, there was 20,000 people in the teacher union there and 70,000 people in the streets, right? 
And so the teacher movement was much bigger than the union itself. And so I've been able to follow those dynamics over the past, over the past few years. Um, and so what are some of those issues? I mean, this is just maybe a side question, but what are some of those issues that the teachers are really coalescing around that you're seeing? So it depends the location, right? So in West Virginia, um, the issue really came down to like bad conditions in the schools, right? Like very few resources, um, affronts, to, affronts to different support systems. But the, the straw that broke the camel's back in West Virginia was a shift in the healthcare system where healthcare costs shot up. And at the same time, a bunch of teachers in West Virginia were actually um, shift Fitbits, you know, like Fitbit watches. And they were told, well, your insurance went up, but if you walk this many steps a day, we can give you a discount. <laughs> and so this was a, a total affront to sort of West Virginia's like sense of like the man telling us what to do. Like, you're gonna tell us that you're gonna tell us we can't survive on this new healthcare price, but we, if, you, if we wanna survive, we have to go to a gym and walk a certain amount. Um, so that was really the, the straw was sort of the healthcare issue um, and this Fitbit. Uh, but in different places, it looks different. So in Los Angeles, that had a huge strike in 2019. Like the issue was really about racial justice. It was about the privatization of the school system, the rise of charter systems, the rise of private money in the public school system, and how this was uh, disproportionately affecting black and brown students throughout Los Angeles. Um, the strike was also about things like um, uh, uh, stop, and, stop and search warrants for students, um, where students were being searched for guns and other um, weapons, but only black students were being profiled. Um, it was about an end to, not an end, but like a, a decrease of standardized testing. Standardized testing has really been out of control since the early 2000s. Um, so, so it depended on the place, but I would say the broadly what's interesting about this teacher movement right now is that they're not just fighting on specific teacher economic issues, but they're fighting for larger racial justice issues. And again, their slogan is that they're fighting for the schools that our students deserve. And so it's a direct relationship between teacher organizing and community organizing for better schools. And so just the last thing I would say, because you asked about COVID, is that COVID was also like a huge um, impetus to teacher organizing, right? So um, the, the shift to what we could call, what, what teachers call um, crisis distance learning, right? Which is distance learning and crisis um, really transformed teachers' working conditions. And in a lot of places, the response of districts was to um, like, implement these policies that were trying to make sure that teachers weren't doing the wrong thing, right? So they had to have like this amount of contact hours, um, administrators were jumping into teachers' classrooms. There was sort of this assumption that teachers were going to um, uh, uh, not do their job, not do their work. And so it became this sort of antagonistic relationship between districts and teachers, not everywhere, but in a lot of locations, right? Um, were schools gonna close? Were they not gonna close? Um, and so there was a spike in teacher activism and teacher organizing across the country. And then George Floyd got murdered and um, teachers around the country have been implementing curriculum like what's called Black Lives Matter in Schools, which is an entire curriculum um, that was implemented 
uh, once a year um, for the past five years in a lot of districts. And so these teachers that had already been engaged in racial, just, racial justice issues, they began even more mobilizing and organizing around how to incorporate issues around black lives into the school system. And so it was like these two things, both the pandemic and the BLM movement that has really shifted teacher organizing right again, once, once again. So I'll stop there because I think I just explained a lot <laughs> no, of teachers. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to teach uh, middle school Spanish and I can't imagine like what you're talking about, the crisis mode of teaching. I can't imagine how difficult that would be at the middle school, high school, elementary school levels. I mean, I think it's probably hard enough for us as college level instructors, but um, I am. Yeah, I just I empathize with that particular challenge. And I think your answer also um, speaks to the power that individual teachers do have, um, even when they're standardized curriculums to integrate issues of um, racial justice and just kind of raising awareness of students about parts of history that maybe don't always get told. And so I think it is important work that's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you have any final thoughts, any concluding words you want to leave us with? Or? No, I was just really happy to be on the podcast. Those were some great questions. And you know, we're at a turning point in global history. Uh, this pandemic has really shifted the way in which we're living our lives. And I strongly believe that if we want to get out of this and have a more just world, then we have to start organizing for it. Because as we know, historically, crises can be taken advantage of by the right, or they can be taken advantage of by grassroots movements. So I'm just hoping we can take some inspiration from the social movements in Latin America and really start to build our movements here in the United States also. So thank you for being, for inviting me on the podcast. Yeah, those are good last words. So thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Tarlow, it was awesome to talk to you and we hope to get to chat again soon. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This series was made possible by sponsorships from the University Park Allocation Committee, the Department of Comparative Literature, the Department of Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese, the Rock Ethics Institute, the Humanities Institute, and the Center for Global Studies. We alack thank you all for your support. This episode was produced by Michelle McGowan and Hannah Matangos. Be sure to subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're interested in joining our ongoing reading group, more information is available on the LAC website. See you next time.